You're here with a mission, sir? I am. Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. You think you're the only superhero in the world? You've become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is now playing's Avengers Retrospective Series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes type thing. Part of the now playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. Well, I guess that's worth a look. Hosted by Arnie. The fate of the universe lies on your shoulders. Jacob. I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. And Stuart. You know, they told me you people were conceited douchebags, but that isn't true at all. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies featuring the superheroes Iron Man. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. The Incredible Hulk. He was a freak accident. The goal is to do it better. Thor. You're big. Fought bigger. Captain America. How many of you are ready to help me sock old Adolf on the job? Ant-Man. The ultimate secret weapon. Guardians of the Galaxy. What a bunch of a-holes. Doctor Strange. The Avengers protect the world from physical dangers. We safeguard it against more mystical threats. And the Avengers. They have an army. We have a Hulk. Let me emphasize that what I'm about to share with you is tremendously sensitive both to me personally and the army. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. Listener discretion is advised. I've always been more curious than cautious. So, are we going to do this? Gentlemen, you're up. Showtime, a-holes! Today we're reviewing the friggin' Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Only, I didn't want to say friggin'. Starring Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, featuring Vin Diesel, Bradley Cooper, Michael Rooker, Karen Gillan, Sean Gunn, with Sylvester Stallone, and Kurt Russell, directed by James Gunn. This is the now-playing co-host, genetically engineered for podcasting, Arnie. Beaming in from Planet Ego, it's Stuart. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! <laughs> but you can call me by my other name, Jacob. It's a metaphor. For what? I'm not sure, but neither does Taserface, so that's okay. <laughs> I, I just picture you waking up, going to the mirror, and in all seriousness, you know what would be a cool name? Jacob! <laughs> so Guardians Volume 2, our first of three official Marvel movies this year with Guardians, Spider-Man, and Thor. It's kind of what told me summer is here. You know, I'm all sort of disoriented now. I've I'm moved around and trying to unpack and a new Marvel movie means to me, yeah, we are finally reaching the summer movie season. According to Box Office Mojo, this is the fifth consecutive year a Marvel movie has kicked off summer. I, I thought this was actually the sixth year because we I thought we started in 2012 with Avengers, but... I always thought the seasons were dictated by the sun and stuff, but now it's Marvel. <laughs> That's how powerful they are. But Guardians, are they the most popular Marvel characters? It took one movie <laughs> for them to get a theme park ride. They're predicted to have this massive... Huge opening, 150 million, I'm hearing. 
I think that this is everyone's favorite. Maybe not with me, but in my household it is. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I think the thing that's different with Guardians, got two little girls. They got a raccoon that talks and a baby Groot. That's all they could talk about. They're like, we need to see Guardians because of those trailers with the cute little tree and that raccoon. My wife just, she loves Star-Lord. She loves just the sarcasm and how they don't get along. So there's definitely a different appeal here with this group than if you're just into Iron Man or into Captain America. There's more characters here for different people to glom onto. I think Iron Man has still got the number one spot for popularity, but yeah, it's unbelievable that they took this unlikely movie that everybody pegged pre-release as the first Marvel bomb. It's got a talking raccoon and a tree and a guy from Parks and Rec and made it into probably number two. They are poised that the next big thing for the Marvel Universe is going to be cosmic. James Gunn is now long-term with Marvel. He's kind of to the cosmic stuff, what Joss Whedon used to be to the ground stuff. Not only has Gunn already agreed to do Guardians Volume 3, but they said Volume 3 is going to kick off the next 10 years of Marvel movies, and they're going to be space-focused. So what we're seeing here is really a major event movie. Yeah, last time I said I couldn't imagine these guys blending in with the Marvel Universe, and now Thor would be lucky to get in with these guys. Thor is blending in. If you've seen that Ragnarok trailer, they drew in the rainbow thing. I definitely think they're kind of leaning that way to have that same appeal. They pulled out classic rock songs with Zeppelin. They put multicolored swirls in space. They have Thor cracking a joke. I know him from work. They want you to think Guardians when you see Thor now. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be helpful for me for a Thor movie. <laughs> and did you guys even catch that they inserted Jeff Goldblum into this movie that we're talking about today? Nope. I did see him in the end credits, yes. Yeah, there were a lot of people in the end credits. He was just one of those characters scrolling by. He came, you know, around Howard the Duck. Yes. I thought I saw him, but then I was realized I hadn't seen him in a Marvel movie yet. He's coming up then. Yeah, he's in Thor. So... I think they're really pushing that direction. I'm, I was actually surprised we got no other Thor teaser here. I mean, Thor 2, if you recall, teased Guardians 1, so I kind of thought Guardians 2 would tease Thor 3. There was one moment when one of the ships are flying past all these other planets where you see two gladiators on a planet. I did jump into another theater just to see that scene again. I thought maybe that's Gladiator Hulk, but... No, I don't think it was. There was no Hulk or Thor trailer here. Well, that makes me ask, how did you guys see the film? I have seen it twice now. I went opening night to the double feature. I got to see Guardians 1 on the big screen again and lead right into Guardians 2. I think after that Star Wars marathon, three movies is my top for any of these marathons. So two was a great number. And then I saw it again Saturday morning here in New Orleans where I'm recording this on the IMAX 3D screen. I did see, they call it the XD experience. It's supposed to be IMAX. It wasn't 3D, but it was that huge screen. And it was pretty packed. I saw it Thursday night, and almost all those shows, when I looked at the reserve tickets, they were selling well. Well, you know, I felt like I couldn't just go to this movie. If everyone is saying this is the best that Marvel can do, I guess it needs to be pointed out that I was the one that didn't get on board last time. And so was I wrong? I went and first got the Blu-ray of the original and watched it again, and yeah, I'll go ahead and admit it. I got it wrong. I actually enjoyed the movie upon second viewing. I mean, there are still problems. The things that I cited that I didn't like about the movie in that 
first podcast, I think still hold true, but it's not even a mild recommend. I mean, I think it's a very solid movie. I think what happened, honestly, was I didn't get it. I, I can freely admit I was just confused. It was so out of left field. It was so not what I was expecting. I was so certain it would suck because it looked so much like Green Lantern. And <laughs> it was so not Winter Soldier, which is where I wanted Marvel to go, that I just really wasn't willing and able to understand its sensibilities. But watching it again, completely divorced of any expectations and that hiccup watching it again, yeah, I thought it was actually very entertaining. And so, yeah, I apologize to the Guardians. I was not willing to get on board, but after watching this on Blu-ray, I was happy to go Thursday night with opening crowd here in Springfield, Illinois, and uh, <laughs> would have expected a bigger reaction to Ghost Rider 3. There were like 12 people in the theater. <laughs> You're not in L.A. anymore. <laughs> I am not. I couldn't believe how little people cared. I thought everyone was excited, but very low turnout, a couple chuckles. But if my problem last time was that I saw it with a crowd that didn't laugh, that remains an issue in, in this film as well. But I did see it in real D, 3D, and I tried to participate with the opening night enthusiasm. I just couldn't find it. For me, at the marathon, it was packed. I've never been to a marathon that had this many people in it except for Star Wars. I mean, keep in mind, I did the Captain America marathon, the Thor marathon. I did the Avengers Age of Ultron one, the Star Wars one. This is the most full outside of the Star Wars one. And the audience was so into the movie that I had trouble hearing the dialogue of part two through all the laughter. I've never heard actual human beings sound like a canned laugh track before, but they did that night. And then I saw it in IMAX on Saturday morning, and it was a pretty empty theater, actually. I couldn't believe there were maybe a dozen people there, great pick of seats, and a very muted response, a few chuckles here and there. So I am glad I was able to actually hear all the jokes this time around. I guess that is the upside, right? <laughs> I can't say that I didn't have the experience interrupted by a, a rude audience or a loud audience. I could hear every word. And I guess because I'm in LA, I had a very participatory audience. Lots of laughing and cheering. I will say before we go in, having seen the IMAX experience, they filmed a lot of this with IMAX cameras. And in fact, the entire thing was filmed using a brand new camera setup, an 8K RED camera. James Gunn is big on pushing technology of movies and he wanted to play with these new cameras and I've never seen a movie in IMAX that jumped to full frame more often. Almost every action scene was shot in IMAX and the rest in 8K. So I really recommend the IMAX experience so you get the full image and the full size. That said, I was kind of let down by the 3D in this film both times I saw it. It had decent depth and a couple of nice Yandu Arrow 3D effects, but most of the time I was just forgetting I was watching a 3D movie. Well, you know, I love the art direction of this movie, so having it come at me in 3D, even if it's maybe not the greatest 3D I've seen, I, I thought it was neat to see it in that way. I if I notice it, it's good. And that's my feeling. It's like if I can realize that the, the imagery that I'm watching is three-dimensional, then they've done something right. And yeah, I definitely could tell from the first shots in Missouri uh, cruising along in that blue sports car that we were looking at a 3D movie that had been done with some care. I should add, I saw the marathon in St. Louis 
And so when the big Missouri came up, my God, the entire crowd roared its approval. Well, in order to talk about that, I guess you should tell them the whole story. Then we can get into volume two. Well, a bit of information at the start. This movie takes place in 2014, and James Gunn has said it's three months after the original film. All right. I was wondering because Baby Groot's still a baby. Yep. Three months have passed, and our Guardians, including Star-Lord Peter Quill, played by Chris Pratt, Gamora, played by Zoe Saldana, Drax the Destroyer, played by Dave Bautista, Rocket Raccoon, voiced by Bradley Cooper, and Baby Groot, the re-sprouting of the Big Groot, again voiced by Vin Diesel. A heavily modulated computer digital <laughs> Vin Diesel. Did he come in to do new lines even for this? They just take the ones from last time. No, this time he did like 18 foreign languages versus the eight foreign languages he did last time. Oh, that's what they, so they just need him to do the foreign language I am Groot every time, then just modulate it. Okay. <laughs> James Gunn actually writes a Groot script that only he and Vin Diesel get to see, so Vin knows how to emote every hmm. I am Groot as if it was actual English dialogue. When the movie opens, the Guardians are taking a job protecting some special batteries for a genetically superior species called the Sovereignty. They do this so they can take possession of the Sovereignty's prisoner Nebula, again played by Karen Gillan. Nebula is Gamora's foster sister who worked with Ronan last film, and the Guardians intend to take her to Xandar, where they can collect the bounty and she will be their prisoner. But Rocket steals some of the Sovereignty's batteries, so on the way to Xandar, they're attacked by a Sovereignty fleet. They escape, though, with the help of a strange individual named Ego, who reveals himself to be Peter's father, played by Kurt Russell. Ego is a celestial being of immense power who has built his own planet. He offers to take Peter there and connect with his long-lost son. Drax, Gamora, and Peter go, while Rocket and Groot stay behind to fix their ship, damaged in the space fight, and to watch over prisoner Nebula. But Aisha, the High Priestess of the Sovereignty, has hired the Ravager crew led by Yandu, played by Michael Rooker, to capture the Guardians and return them to her. Yandu tracks down the Guardian's ship and takes Rocket prisoner, but when Yandu reveals he only wants the batteries and he'll let the Guardians go, Yandu's crew mutinies. They're aided by Nebula, who stuns both Rocket and Yandu, and the Ravager, Taserface, declares himself the new leader. Nebula, as payment, takes a Ravager ship and flies to Ego's planet to take her revenge on Gamora. There, the two fight and Nebula wins, but the two sisters form an uneasy truce. But Yandu knows Ego is evil, so with aid of Baby Groot and still loyal Ravager Kraglin, played by Sean Gunn, James Gunn's brother, Rocket and Yandu escape and kill all the mutinying Ravagers. The four survivors then head to Ego's planet to help Peter. Because on the planet, Peter and Ego were bonding, as were Drax and Ego's only companion and empath named Mantis. But then Ego reveals his overall life is built towards galactic domination. He's traveled the galaxy, planting pieces of himself on every planet so he can take everything over, but he can't do it alone. He needs another celestial. So he bred with many women, and, of all the species, only Peter got the celestial gene. Yandu had brought him other children, and when Ego discovered they weren't Celestials, Ego killed them all. Ego also reveals he really did love Peter's mother, and she almost distracted Ego from his universal purpose, so he gave her the brain tumor that killed her. This makes Peter realize how evil Ego is, and the two immortal Celestials get in a major battle. But Rocket builds a bomb that Baby Groot takes to the center of the planet where Ego's brain lives. Ego is destroyed, but to save Peter, Yandu has to sacrifice himself, giving Peter the only spacesuit. 
And as he dies, Yandu reveals he always thought of himself as Peter's real daddy. And Peter agrees as he gives Yandu a final funeral in space as credits roll. And tell us a whole lot of other stuff, including there might be a Howard the Duck movie, but I guess we can get into that. Another Howard the Duck! Howard the Duck's not even a tease this time, he's in the movie. You're out of luck until you go duck. Maybe that will be the Marvel bomb I thought Guardians (laughs) 1 would be. It already is. (laughs) That's happened before. (laughs) Yes, but before we go to a hooker planet, we go to Missouri. 1980 Missouri, which is where... I had read going in that this movie would have a Dairy Queen product placement. They have a big tie-in with Dairy Queen. You can go right now and get the Guardians of the Galaxy Blizzard. Have you had one? It's pretty good. It's brownies and cookies. (laughs) Oh. This placement's so blatant, my 10-year-old yelled out, Woo, Dairy Queen! As soon as they showed it, (laughs) she was excited. I wondered how they'd get a DQ in deep space, but they have this scene here on Earth, and they're going to cut back to this exact location later, so you get to see back then their sign said Dairy Queen, and now it says DQ because people know dairy is bad for you. But yeah, there it is right there as... (laughs) They're listening to 70s rock and Kurt Russell with amazing. I've just got to get over the fact that movies can now bring back my idols from the 80s and make them look exactly the same. After Michael Douglas and Ant-Man, here Kurt Russell looks just like he did in any of those early 80s action films. I think they might have actually used Big Trouble in Little China as a reference. He looks just like that. This did freak my wife out. She didn't know they could de-age old actors. She's never seen that before. I guess I could show her X3, The Last Stand. I might get in trouble if I do that, though. But yeah, she's like, how did they get him to look so young? But they did a good job de-aging him here. Yeah, Kurt Russell said this look was 90% makeup, but... I want to talk to the FX guys and see if that's an actual percentage. I think this is some CGI like they used on Michael Douglas in Ant-Man or Jeff Bridges in Tron. Yeah, incredible. And uh, I just want to say Dairy Queen, to me, feels like 1980, as does Looking Glasses Brandy. I mean, all of it just really sets a mood and a time. And that's certainly how Guardians likes to predicate itself. It's A lot of its humor is drawing from... Gen X humor, you know, like nostalgia. Do you remember when? All that stuff here. I think that this is just a way of retelling us that Ego and Meredith are the parents, in case you forgot the last movie. But there's another detail that happens here. It's not just a a trip to Dairy Queen. He takes her all the way down to the river and shows her what? A space seed. Some kind of space plant. Yes. What is this? This is a part of the plot that I never quite understand. Well, this tells me, oh, don't trust the dad. Early on here, I'm like, he's planning things on different planets. This isn't good. She knows. He's not lying to her. She knows he's a spaceman. And on that respect, it feels like, okay, he's being forthcoming about who he is. And if she's not upset with the idea of space plants taking over all over the universe, then why should I be? Well, I don't think she knows that, though. It's just a space plant. He says it'll be everywhere, but I took that to mean like it would be a very popular plant. I didn't take it to mean it was literally going to encompass and eat the earth but yeah the first time i watched this movie i completely forgot about the space plants until they bring it back up later i just remembered them being on earth but yeah he's going planet to planet we find out late in the film and in the little animation they show us he's like plucking hair from himself and planting it and it's growing into this flower And I guess it doesn't spread or germinate or pollinate on its own because it's just going to sit in that location as like a 
sell that when he becomes powerful enough, it will then spread and become like the blob from the 50s film and take over everything. Okay, well, that's the part I guess we'll talk about in the climax that's a little blurry. But anytime you're showing me a a guy with feathery hair that is spreading his seeds around, I mean, I think I get it. Ego's a player. And so this woman believes that he loves her, but he probably has a chick in every port. And so that's why I'm not trusting this character. Yeah, but they are going to try to convince us by the end that he really did love her. That's why he had to kill her. That sounds like an abusive boyfriend. I, I got to do this to you, baby, because I love you. But yeah, they're going to try to make this relationship different than the thousands of others that he had across the universe. It's just so funny that of all the forms he could take, he happened to take a human. He happened to mate successfully with a human. We're, we're a really good species, us humans. Yeah, I figured he would have changed every time. But when they show that backstory through those weird, I don't know, they look like mannequins on his planet. It does look like he was just Kurt Russell every time showing up on different worlds. And when we get to the Guardians, I guess in 2014, I'm assuming they're protecting one of those plant seeds. Uh, They're in front of something glowing and strange looking, but it actually turns out to be an Anulax battery. All right, guys, what is that? A MacGuffin? It doesn't matter. I don't know. Oh, okay. Nothing in the Marvel Universe. This is not like the origin of some superhero. No, not that I'm aware of, no. Okay. These harbulary batteries are not anything other than just, they say early on they're going to explode if shot, so I know that we have a bomb. All right, well, see, again, I'm always looking for the tease for the next character they're going to add, and I just figured that the battery would eventually turn into something. I just wanted to be prepared. What I do like about this script overall, I do think they do a lot of basic things, but it's really helpful when you're trying to understand a movie This opening scene with this battle against some space squid, it tells me what I'm supposed to get out of Guardians. The battle's not the important thing. That's all happening in the background. The important thing is the jokes. That is what you're coming to a Guardians movie for. So yeah, you're going to have Groot dancing around. He's going to pull some of the same old joke where he freezes when Drax tries to watch him. But this tells me this is what I should focus on. Don't worry about the conflicts and the shooting. That's not important. It's the jokes that you can get in between. I want to just dispute that though you said what you came here for is the jokes i think all of the marvel cinematic universe films have a rooting in humor right some go more comedic than others i mean we can compare the incredible hulk to thor as far as which is more funny but i don't ever go to a marvel cinematic universe film for yucks I just like to smile while I watch an action film. Yeah, but could you imagine watching Civil War and it's Spider-Man standing in a corner just making jokes while all that fight goes on somewhere else? Like, they wouldn't do that in another Marvel film. They would do that in Guardians. They might do it in (laughs) Ant-Man. But I hear what you're saying. And I think you're right. I mean, I look at it this way. Yeah, we could focus on the battle, but look at Groot. I mean, this is who we're playing to, and everyone's got to admit it's too adorable to ignore. Yeah, the way that they have animated him and everything, Marjorie is just, if it has baby Groot on it, Marjorie is buying it. She brought a baby Groot down to New Orleans with us for photos. It is a huge hit this time. Last time, I don't think they knew what they had going. In fact, I've talked to merchandisers Marvel kept the little baby Groot in the pot in that movie a secret. Merchandisers didn't even know it was coming, and so they were rushing to market to get people the baby Groots they wanted. Now, you can't go into a store without tripping over about 20 baby Groot items. And yet, I want to say, for me, I always have this issue of, like, 
I don't want to see kitty entertainment. And I do feel like this is one step away from a YouTube cat video, right? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not like I'm immune to it. I get it. It is cute. But I don't want to watch a movie of cute. And in fact, when someone recommends a movie by saying, oh, you should see it, it's cute. I won't see that movie. And, you know, I agree. The humor last time, it, you know, like all humor, some of it works, some of it doesn't. Going into this one, I didn't know what to expect with this movie. I never saw any big bad in any of the trailers. And all I knew is my girls, Rocket and Baby Groot, because that was the marketing for this. I'm like, there's no way this could be a film about a raccoon and a little baby tree. There's got to be some story, but they got to have those moments because it's not just six-year-olds. You got Marjorie who loves Baby Groot. Everyone loves Baby Groot. So you got to have that moment. I love Baby Groot, and I liked the starting off with the dance. They're definitely playing to what they know worked last time. Everybody loved the dancing Groot at the end of the last film. We're going to start with him here, and he's going to fight a lizard and do all this and wave. You know, he's cute, he's naive, but we're also got this huge battle going on in the background. Just kudos to every animator who worked on him. But I agree with you, Stuart. There's always that cut to the dog sense of humor that you see in films that it irks me if you're relying too much on the family dog to be funny in a movie that means the rest of the humor isn't working i'm happy to say that they're giving people their dose of baby groot here and then he becomes one of the players he does not steal the entire movie it's not baby groot and the guardians of the galaxy he is one of the guardians and i think they share equal screen time if not story importance honestly my biggest fear would be if the entire entire story revolved around everyone wanted baby Groot. But in fact, Groot, Drax, and to a slight degree Gamora, they're along for the ride on this one. They don't have plot points. I don't feel like there's a whole lot of plot in this film. I feel this is more of a character film, and they'll all get their character moments. It's an improvement upon the first in that way, that I understand these people more and understand why they're all kind of a bunch of a-holes to each other. Yeah, it starts with Rocket, right? I mean, you're right. This opening battle is just to let everyone know they're back and they're exactly as they were before. And isn't it great? But then Rocket just takes it a step too far. He does go from being an asshole to a dick. <laughs> he does risk going from being funny to being like, you know what? You are endangering the mission by stealing batteries. Yes, the Sovereign are an uptight race of gold people that really should get over themselves. But yes, intentionally insulting them with this winking asides that are actually in front of them and not aside. And then, yeah, stealing the thing that they're trying to protect from being stolen. It's a dick move. And it goes that step beyond being cute to being like, yeah, this guy needs a comeuppance. Well, the other dick move that I thought, and maybe I just read it wrong from the first Guardians. I did rewatch that with the girls because they wanted to see it so bad before I saw this. So it was pretty fresh in my mind. But I thought Star-Lord and Gamora were a thing already. And here, after they saved the Sovereigns, Star-Lord's hitting on Aisha. Hey, let's. I, I want to show you how to make babies the old-fashioned way. So are, him and Gamora are not a thing? No, I didn't even get that they were a thing last time. They had that little dance moment, but when we last left them, she said she would not succumb to his pelvic sorcery. So I think that, you know, they're going to go into it big time here that it's this unspoken, they're going to equate it to Sam and Diane on Cheers. And I didn't think at the end of that movie, though, they were an item. And I actually got a little bit of a Captain Kirk vibe off of Peter Quill when I was seeing him hitting on Aisha. 
Aisha is just one of a million women that Peter may have wooed at the time, but he is going to back off almost immediately when Gamora shoots him a look. So obviously there's something there, but it's kind of tricky for him to know if he's really stuck in the friend zone or not. Yeah, I think these are the two characters that are going to have the arcs. Rocket and Peter are both going to have their aren't I cute, regressive attitude challenged. And I think that's good. I mean, one of my hangups with watching that original movie was it was kind of a a lot of frivolousness. And at the center, it almost seemed to advocate that the hero is someone that doesn't care about anyone and makes jokes and pot shots at everyone. It's not a character I can usually follow for movie after movie. Here, both these characters are going to have their smarminess challenged And they're going to have to get emotional. And I do like that as a way of taking the characters into a new arena. I agree. All these characters, Yondu, oh my gosh, I can't wait till we get to him. Everyone's going to have to grow up in this one. One thing I want to say, not with the characters, but with the set and seeing it here with the Sovereigns, I just like the production values of this Guardians film, like these gold Sovereigns and that queen, that throne she's on. It almost looks like the Atari symbol behind her and that deep blue, which will become (laughs) relevant later on. We'll find out. It may be the Atari symbol. But I just like that this Guardians universe... You know, with the superhero universe on the ground, it's a lot of muted colors. They're just really going for the like the rainbow primary colors here. And I like that they've grasped it. I like that they've said, okay, this is a goofy like space comic book. So let's kind of run with that in the way it looks. And I get it right away here with the Sovereigns. I agree that everything designed here is great. As far as some of the buildings look, it looks like they could have been rejects from Asgard. You know, when they were trying to design the palace, they might have had this Sovereign Palace as a sketch somewhere or something because I think that it has a similar regal design both here and when we get to Ego's planet but everything is so colorful I did read that James Gunn because the last movie was so purple he pretty much banished the color purple from this movie it shows up once in a while but that was my complaint last time is just everyone's purple here everyone's still a primary color but they're different primary colors I like that technically purple's a secondary color well you know what I mean bright colors Always like the design. I mean, I, I even last time, even as I was giving a red arrow, I was giving a green arrow to the production design. I think that this is one of the best science fiction universes, period. That just is a great world, universe, galaxy, whatever it is to explore. It feels like almost a trashy B-movie universe, but it's just, it's got that Disney money behind it, so it looks good. But I see what James Gunn, it doesn't surprise me James Gunn would want kind of that B-movie feel, but it, it's an expensive B-movie feel and i dig it but this movie you say we're going to be talking about the arcs the biggest theme of this movie i'd say this is a movie about theme over plot and the theme that every character has to come to terms with is family and the reason they fought the interdimensional sea monkey was so that they could get gamora's sister back nebula her half sister both adopted daughters of Thanos. Nebula cut off her hand at the end of the first film and flew off into space. Here she is. She still doesn't have a hand and she was a prisoner of the Sovereign where they were going to execute her. And Gamora is kind of saving her even though they're going to take her to Xandar for the bounty and let her live the rest of her days in a prison camp. She was also stealing the battery. And again, I think this battery is going to mean something at some point. You're saying it's not Infinity War, though. No stones in this one. Maybe that's why I enjoyed it more, too. Okay. It's not a movie about a rock. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But it is a movie sometimes about famously huge turds. We're seeing a lot of battle between Peter and Rocket about who's the best captain. I think we all said that last movie of that they both seemed like they were competing for Han. They do seem to have an ego battle here. Yeah, which seems a little regressive. I know everyone's regressive in this, but I do feel like they got to play some of those original, the team coming together notes, because that's where the drama is. I love, one of the things I did love about that first film was that, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. Everyone comes together and holds hands and that defeats the evil guy at the end. (laughs) I do love just that weird, cheesy B-movie feel. But now it does seem like, oh, we got a sequel. We got to have drama. So we're going to put everyone at odds again. It did bother me a little bit at the beginning. But what they do with the characters I like so much, I get over it by the end. Yeah, they'll split them up. They're each going to have their own moment. To me, they're the only ones that have it. You're saying everyone does? I think Amora gets a little one. I guess we're supposed to think that Gamora and Nebula are going through something with family, but I I feel like it's one of the lesser explored storylines. It would be fair to say that I don't really care. And I don't think Groot and Drax have anything. They're just here to make jokes. Baby Groot looks cute and makes people laugh, and Drax... They're no longer going to play on the metaphor thing. I was afraid that his overly literal sense would be a repeated joke here. They don't have a single I don't understand metaphors joke. Instead, he's just going to be completely blunt and a little egotistical and uh, he's a jokester. He laughs way too much in this movie. Yeah, I have famously huge turds. His arc is to learn to find inner beauty in this film, I guess. Because he sure hates Mantis. She's an ugly one, I guess. (laughs) And he's trying to tell Peter to give up on Gamora because she can't dance and he's a dancer and find someone as pathetic as you. Yeah, I don't know that this character will ever have a plot line. Maybe I'll be surprised in the future, but he does feel like comedic punctuation. And boy, they do hit the note a lot. Almost every scene, he's laughing heartily about something that's rude. Yeah, he must have really had a chip on his shoulder about his dead family last movie because he barely laughed at all. I think he only laughed when drunk in the last movie. But I did feel Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, gave everybody a motivation. Everybody had their arc. His arc was wanting to avenge his family and deal with Ronin for killing them. Here, his inclusion feels almost obligatory. Like, if they were making this as an original movie and people weren't expecting to see Drax, why would you have him here? He is a character without a purpose just along for the ride. He was never even in it for the money last time, so why is he still hanging with them? It's convenient. I'm going to make a guess that he ends up marrying Mantis. Yeah, I think he's there because this is his new family. That's why he sticks around. Peter's dad shows up and Drax is going to go with them. I guess he could have gone either way. It doesn't feel like it matters where Drax goes when the team splits up. It is confusing, though. You know, you get this big fight. The Sovereign people find out Rocket took some batteries. They send out their automatically piloted spaceships. They're back in an arcade machine controlling these things, which I thought was a good joke. I got a complete last Starfighter feel from this, with everybody playing the arcade games to fight the drones and everything. I thought we were going to get a Death Blossom at one point. We do get a Death Blossom. We totally get a Death Blossom at the end of the movie. Yondu pulls it off, but... I don't like the Sovereign as a species, and maybe I'm not supposed to. The way that they all interact, despite being so gold and uptight, then they're just like, 
typical. You suck when one of them loses. They feel like a preppy frat of a species or something. And for some reason, they just don't click with me. Well, I don't think they're supposed to click because they are. Yeah, they're all supposed to be equal and the same, made from the same genetic material. They're gold. They're the 1%. You're not supposed to like them. Yeah, that's. I definitely felt like this was a take on the 1%. And in fact, a lot of what this movie is going to deal with is the way that privilege can't relate to common and difference. If you have a species that all looks the same and all has been determined to do one certain thing, how are they going to understand a universe with so many different races and colors and backgrounds? And then, yeah, the they're going to go through an asteroid field. Was I the only one who was thinking Empire Strikes Back a lot during this movie? They're going to have a pilot go through an asteroid field. I was thinking about C-3PO telling Han Solo the odds. They're going to have a Death Star at the end. But I do love this asteroid. It's a quantum asteroid field. You don't know where the asteroids are. They disappear and reappear. It's, it's all quantum physics. Yeah, and you're going to meet the father. I mean, I think it's built into the cake here. I mean, I, I think that they know people are going to think that because everyone called the last movie Star Wars, I think they came into this knowing, all right, they're all going to call this Empire Strikes Back. We can go darker. We can meet the father. We can have all of these little touches. But to me, I'm grateful it doesn't feel too Star Wars. I mean, I definitely felt Star Wars-y to me, but it's irreverent enough. Star Wars, I saw the trailer for The Last Jedi again before watching this movie both times. Star Wars is so self-serious right now that I don't see those movies ever getting as lighthearted and jokey as this, and I don't see us having a Vegas planet with hookers in Star Wars. Speaking about that father here, he makes his appearance. He saves their ass. Really, the argument who was the greatest pilot of the universe ends up being a draw. Neither the <laughs> <laughs> Trash Panda nor Star Munch gets to save the day at the end of this asteroid battle. It is Ego that comes out of nowhere and blasts the 12 that were hiding just outside the asteroid field and wants to take them to his home world. Kurt Russell, we've discussed him before. He's having a big summer being in Fate of the Furious and Guardians and last year, Deepwater Horizon. He's having kind of a career renaissance going on here. I loved him in Hateful Eight when we discussed him, available on our Podbean. They seem to make sense as father and son. If you're making a lineage to who Chris Pratt would have been if, if he was an actor in the 80s, I think he would have probably gotten some of those Kurt Russell roles. That said, when he shows up, I don't believe him. Like Peter... I suspect that there is something deeply wrong with this guy, and I believe the trick, the twist that's waiting for him, is that this is an imposter. This is not his real dad. Yeah, I was going with that too, especially when Sylvester Stallone shows up later asking about taking children. I'm like, oh, maybe that's the real dad. I, whoever Ego is, he's a bad guy to me. I, he was doing those plants all across the universe early on, and I, yeah, you don't trust him as the dad. Yeah, at this point, I, I do feel he's probably the villain. And I didn't know. I mean, it's Kurt Russell, and he's coming across very charismatic. He's Peter's dad. I don't know a whole lot about Ego, the living planet from the comics. I do know Peter's dad is not the planet in the comics. It was Jason. No, Jason. <laughs> but I wondered who the villain of this movie was. And so I actually trusted Ego at this point. He showed up. He saved Peter. Seems like a nice enough guy and down to earth. He has to go take a whiz and talks about how much he loved Peter's mom and how he's been looking for him forever. I actually didn't see the overall betrayal coming. I mean, he's a celestial being with immense power. 
what would he need? It's too good to be true. How could all of this, how could you make a movie with the idea that this character is the perfect father? That I've searched for you all this time. The reason why you didn't end up with me years ago was because of that horrible Yandu. And I'm a god that has a perfect planet and you're going to live forever. And yeah, and here's another Empire Strikes Back moment, right? I mean, Ego's planet is basically Bespin. It seems nice and peaceful. It's really pretty. The female says she has a bad feeling about this and doesn't trust their host as much as the pilot who brought them there does, and there's going to be a big father reveal at the end of it. The deal is too good. You can smell that something has to be wrong with an offer like this. And it is. Come on, does a living planet, does that measure up to David Hasselhoff? Because one of the things I like about this movie is these characters, they'll give these quick little monologues that just say so much about their character. And when Star-Lord reveals that he lies as an Earth kid saying David Hasselhoff was his dad because, you know, and can his real dad measure up to this guy who brought down the Berlin Wall? All right. You liked these monologues. I thought that the writing in this movie was so incredibly cheesy. And maybe that's the joke. Yeah, no, that's what I liked about it. It was sweet because it's family oriented. It, you know, it's about family. So, yeah, that you have these cheesy models. Again, I feel like these should all be B movies. So it works in that mindset. Truthfully, here's what I kept coming back to. This entire movie was like an episode of Saved by the Bell with Drax playing Screech. The way that they give these heart-pouring, melodramatic speeches, and everybody gets one at some point, usually to characters that they shouldn't be giving the speech to. I mean, the way Gamora has to start off, I mean, it starts off with a joke about Sardu Hasselfrau, but then she has to tell him, basically she's telling us, this whole story that they both already know about him carrying around that picture of David Hasselhoff, this is clumsy dialogue that these two characters would not say. And later on, Nebula's going to spill her emotional guts to a complete stranger. This bugs me. This is melodrama and poorly done. It does feel like Saturday morning kitty television and not something meant for somebody my age. I'll split the difference. I don't feel like they always earn the emotions that they're going for, but I think this movie is better for going for them and not just relying on the nostalgia humor. I mean, there's plenty of that. And I have to say, humor wasn't my favorite part of the first movie. And I feel like it's decreased in this film. This movie is not as funny as the original because they're hitting too many of the same notes. The first movie was too outside the box. It was too unexpected. It was too creative to be able to be matched by a sequel. I mean, the sequel, just by doing it again, you're not going to get as big a laugh. And they need to replace place that humor with something why not go with melodrama that said i do feel like they throw a whole lot more jokes out i don't think they land as well but i again the pacing is off in this film this is a long movie this is as long as that fate of the furious and i didn't like the length of that one and this one at times feels long too because they do try to throw out a bunch of jokes they're just not as good it worries me Stuart, that you say it's not as funny as the last one because this one is trying to be a comedy. It is trying to throw out as many jokes per minute as a Police Academy film. And I don't know that they're all going to hit. I think it's going to hurt the film long term. I mean, I saw the film twice in three days and I could already say that what I was laughing at the first time, a couple of times the second time, was mild amusement. You can tell me the same joke over and over again, and it just doesn't become as funny. And if you don't find the jokes funny here, what does it leave you? There's nothing in this film but a lot of jokes. I totally disagree with that. And one thing it leaves you with, 
characters that I didn't formally care about that I suddenly do, like Yondu. Yes! I can't believe how much I've come around to a character I didn't even want to look at on screen last time and thought, yeah, this. why did they even include him? The, the guy that stole Peter from Earth that was supposed to bring him back to Ego and didn't because, well, we're told a lot of things. Maybe he was going to eat him. Maybe he just needed him because he was small and could help them with their thieving. But no, it's an incredible transformation that we get here, starting with, yeah, this hooker planet with Howard the Duck, and we, we see him not having fun with sex bots. I couldn't quite read that scene. It looked like he was finished up with the sex bots. One of them was powering down, and yeah, they're on this planet full of... Is this actually... I said Vegas, but now I'm thinking about it. Is this the Amsterdam of the Guardians universe? <laughs> I imagine there's many of those. For some reason, just with the predilection of the characters we've met i can't believe this is the only place where you can do bad things well yeah when stallone shows up he tells the madam i guess of this planet that you've lost the business of 99 percent of the ravagers so i guess they got other planets to go to for horan stallone this was like a giant exclamation point right nobody knew i kept forgetting he was in this they announced he was in it but they never said as who oh really i had no idea i mean i didn't watch any trailers for this i wasn't excited about this movie i wasn't anticipating it i read nothing i knew nothing i had no idea he was coming into the marvel universe i don't know who his character sakar is though i'll tell you well i know he's going to get his own movie with michelle yo but yes should i be excited about it and the voice of miley cyrus that little computer what and ving rames and michael rosenbaum who played lex luther in smallville is that ice guy but no, Stakar and the reason you get that group shot as one of the many credit scenes, the version we see with Stallone, that is the original version when the Guardians of the Galaxy were created. The version we see in these movies with Star-Lord and Rocket and Groot, that was all a later version that came like in the 2000s when they updated this concept. Okay. Well, I wonder what that means for Stallone. Is he getting a spinoff or is he a big part of Volume 3? I honestly feel like 5 is a good number for these Guardians. I've got theories based on another end credit scene, but I'll wait till we get there. Okay, fair enough. But anyway, my point is that we have Yondu actually very sympathetic. We find out that he is hated by all of his other peers because of what he did with Peter. And even his own crew is thinking about mutiny. Yeah, he ran children. That is the one thing of the Ravager code. And Stallone, he can hit or miss when he gives dramatics, but I thought he delivered it pretty well here when he's like, it gives me no pleasure to exile you. And he does so little in this movie. It's They didn't advertise him. It's not even a role. This is a cameo appearance by Stallone. I picture him on set for maybe one full day. I think he does as much here as Kurt Russell did in the first Fast and the Furious film he showed up and he wasn't in that one much either. They're setting up a character for another film. Yeah, it's a setup. Absolutely. This is whatever they're planning in the future. But it's meaningful to Yondu because Yondu wants this guy's approval so bad. You see it in this scene. He wants so much to be forgiven. And his crew resents the fact that he was so light on Peter. That even though Peter thought he was abused as an abducted child, in fact... He was rather doted on. And here we have all those themes of fathers and sons. I mean, Stakar took Yandu. We're going to find out in one of these inappropriately delivered monologues, just the timing. Yandu's going to spill his guts to Rocket that he was a slave. He was the same species. That's why they're all blue as Ronin. 
he was a Cree and sold into slavery and Stakar saved him from slavery and taught him to be a ravager. So here Stakar was a father figure to Yondu. And I always thought that Yondu was a father figure to Peter. The fact that at the end of the last movie, Peter stole the infinity gem and Yondu's response is to sit there with the, <laughs> that kid. Well, he, he got that troll in return. He, he collects those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just that little smile of that kid got me made me know he wasn't really going to kill Peter. So, yeah, we've got fathers and sons all over this movie. Yeah, and I think that's a strong, good theme. I think it develops into the central conflict uh, once we get back to Planet Ego. But the point is, Aisha is really petty and wants Yandu to come and collect the Guardians so she can personally kill them for stealing just a small amount of batteries. Not the super battery, but, you know, it's a petty offense that she is taking and making the highest crime, an example of the Guardians so that no one ever screws with her sovereignty again. But Yandu is not going to honor that. He is going to track down the Milano, but he has no real intention about betraying them. And did you guys laugh when Aisha shows up on that pleasure planet? It's snowing there. They have her walking on the blue carpet and the music comes. And then the score stops when one of the carpet runners hitches and... They have to shake it loose. I'm not finding all of this humor to work. Did I laugh? No, but most of the theater did. This movie throws a lot of jokes out there, and I like some of them, and I don't mind most of them. But again, what I like about it, not that I thought it was hilariously funny, I just like that vibe in this Guardians universe where even these golden people, their little carpet doesn't work. I mean, that first Guardians film, whenever you went to Ronin, it became like this super dark movie about jihad and crushing people's head and black blood running down like it was this weird tonal shift this one i feel you don't get that everything's a joke here and i think what it does if nothing else even if it doesn't make you laugh it tells you she's not really the enemy she's not the bad guy of this movie she's a a lesser conflict she creates problems by sending bounty hunters after our heroes but she is not what we're waiting to see take over the universe there is a bigger bad out there this is a movie that feels without danger for a lot of the movie because the Sovereign, they're hunting the Guardians, but they never feel like a real threat with their video game machines. And Ego, there was always the question in my mind, who is the bad guy here? Ego is new. Is he the bad guy? But it's a movie that feels strangely without menace and without a ticking clock. There's no impetus for anything there's no hurry we're just able to languish around and have long conversations with mantis about are her antennas there to stop her from being decapitated by doorways and there is menace though because she has things to say that she's not telling the crew that mantis knows more than she's letting on and she has some kind of strange relationship i'm surprised at this point that you don't have some suspicion about ego he is named ego after all definitely by the time we get to the planet the offer is too good to be true and you're right in the absence of having a main villain in the absence of looking at the sovereignty and thinking those are buffoons 
then we must suspect that something is going on here. I found it really intriguing because I couldn't anticipate where the threat was going to happen. I couldn't begin to imagine. To me, it was more engaging intellectually. Yeah, I'm wondering what is the evil here? Because I'm suspecting ego, but when you go to his planet, I'm thinking Asgard with these weird rainbow bubbles that are flying everywhere. And it's just, it's too beautiful looking, yet no one lives on there. It's only ego and Mantis. And why does he have Mantis there? She says he's there to help him sleep, that he sits up at night thinking about his progeny. Because even though he's a planet, he's going to give us his backstory. And it's told in like 3D dioramas in these Mork from Orc type eggs that shift around. (laughs) Yeah, they look like mannequins or something. Yeah. Yeah. And he starts off as this brain with the tail of a sperm is like how he came into existence and he built this planet around him but then he built himself into human form so he's both the planet and he's kurt russell and he needs to sleep because he's human then he's a celestial he's a small g god as he calls out and we've seen a celestial in the guardians universe before if you remember nowhere that planet where the collector lived it it was the head of a celestial that they were mining for biological material oh I, i had a question about celestials i was wondering what they meant but okay yeah they're kind of this godlike race they're not i guess a capital g god but they have godlike powers arnie you're complaining about these little monologues this is the one like contrivance i feel is that he needs to sleep and that's gonna i'm like oh well that's gonna come in during the climax at some point that mantis is gonna have to put someone to sleep because that's all they're doing here is setting that up yeah she doesn't have a great reason for being there but at the same time this is about narcissism right this is about someone that only can understand the universe through the way it accepts and reflects him so you know he basically just needs her It's said that her antennas can alter mood, that it allows him to, I I guess I take it, to not be so angry about being a little god. That he would like to control all of the universe, but knows he's not powerful enough to do it. And she helps regulate those temper tantrums. I never got that. I honestly got that she helped him sleep, which makes me wonder why a god needs to sleep i got star trek 5 vibes a lot in this movie why does god need to nap versus why does god need a starship it's got trek for sure but again i think that's what's cool about it was we're getting away from star wars fantasy explosions action we're actually getting to ideas and to me the debate about ego and narcissism and what that is as a threat to the universe feels very topical it feels very cool and i'm surprised that this movie has bitten off so much to chew on i mean how do you feel it's topical because i'm not getting that from kurt russell's performance here i'm not the sovereign yes i could see that as the one percent but he's not putting on a toupee but obviously we're living in the era of trump we're living in america only first brexit we only matter i'm not going to look at the larger world other races other differences that is to be annihilated the universe is only important as a mirror of my own image yeah ego looks at the universe searches for the purpose and finds himself he says yeah you know without trying to get too political it's looking at our current state of affairs who's leading the country and the world i guess if you want to see that there it's there but i'm not able to see that in ego i don't understand his whole motivation he goes out and tries to find life he was completely alone 
felt there had to be other life, created this human form, went out, met a purple girl, met some other people, started sleeping around. This was even before he had the plan. And then what he'll say later on in his monologue is that he just found life to be so meaningless and his purpose was to be everything. Yeah, this is incredible. I mean, this is Citizen Kane. This is you know, materialism and consumption. I like, I just want more and more and more and more and more and where will it end? And eventually people like that try to think, well, maybe I need a son. Usually it's a son, someone to carry on, but they need to be a reflection of me. I'm still not giving up the throne. I'm still not giving up on focusing on myself, but I need something else because I am so lonely and bagging a bunch of women is not enough. I really like this ego as an antagonist. I'm going to say, Marvel, your villains are best when they are family or there's some broken trust, like Bucky and Winter Soldier. Those are your good villains when you actually give them a backstory and give them motivations. Stop just doing characters that are just evil because they have a magic rock and they want to destroy things with it. This is when things work all the way around in a Marvel movie for me. You got good heroes, you got a good villain, good action, because this villain, he has a purpose here. Peter and we want to believe the best in him because Peter so badly has been searching for a father. And they have this, you know, what's more iconic than a father and son playing catch? But he's teaching him how to harness the power of the center of the planet, his brain, and create those energy balls. And it seems at first like bonding. It seems like, yes, he's made his family but what he's really doing is drifting away from his friends, who are the family we want him to stay with. And this is the conflict I like better, is before Ego is all, I'm just going to create a blue blob on every planet and destroy everything. I like it better when he is bonding with Peter and he goes on about how important the song Brandy is and how they're the sailor and the way he loved Peter's mom and the way Peter feels for Gamora is great. They'd be good wives, but their life, their love, their lady is the sea. I would actually prefer it if there was a grand calling that was a little bit less evil, maniacal, destroy the universe type thing. Yeah, it's not destroy the universe. He's strewn his seed all over it. He's wanted the universe to reflect him. And that's the way that I see it. And he doesn't care about who he hurts. I think the story would play better if he didn't try to sell the idea that he loved Meredith. I don't get the sense that he loves anything. You know, ego. I only care about myself. The fact that he loved her so much and she kept drawing him away from his planet where I guess he needs to be to recharge that he had to put a tumor in her head. Again, it's very abusive boyfriend sounding. It, it doesn't work. Yeah, but he doesn't really love her. He might say that that was love, but to him, love was getting in the way of what he wanted, which is world domination, which is himself. I mean, he can only have a relationship with who he is. And I think that's a great, again, it's a very topical timely in the world of selfies we need to think about are we the only thing that matters that stepping outside yourself these are characters all of the guardians are characters who can be very selfish and thinking only of how they benefit from a situation this is a great lesson and i don't even think it's about being evil selfish is the right way to go he's narcissistic yeah sure he's going to destroy the universe to make it look like him but it's not because oh i got to have the power it's just he's a narcissist and he sees that as what to do i mean it may be a fine line but i it's different than just having an evil bad guy 
To me, I totally groove it. It feels like they hit it out of the park with that. I disagree. I feel that he becomes that bland, evil, bad guy at the end of the movie when he's going to kill all life in the galaxy so that his blue blob can spread over it. And I actually did believe him when he said he loved Meredith in his way. I mean, I think that there is choices made by a lot of people between career and family. And he was being drawn into family over career there and he decided to put career first yes the fact that he caused meredith's brain tumor was something i strongly suspected when he finally reveals it to kick off the final act and that's what's finally going to make peter realize killing people is bad because peter seems to be going along with the whole hey let's just kill all life in the galaxy he feels slightly bad what about gamora and things well yeah but and that's when ego says it hurt me to put the tumor in your mother's head yeah i don't know how much star gets i mean he's gonna get shot with like an electric blue tail of lightning that goes through him and his eyes go all starry i don't know if he understands that it's gonna wipe everyone out yeah he wants to create giant statues of heather locklear and pac-man i think he's attracted to the power and he's attracted to being close to a man who he's imagined for so long that is the center of his universe and i think it is hard i think it's where the failings of the writing are it's hard to understand how those seeds i mean i get it as a metaphor of he's thrown a seed around this is a father that has been a player and had too many affairs and tells every woman that he loves him but in fact it will move on to the next one but it's hard to understand i guess it's just the blob represents more of himself brain matter semen i'm not sure but the problem is that what those seeds turn into it's not easy to understand why they need to kill everyone and how they reflect ego yeah that is where i do feel like the writing is weak is it's going to be a blob that covers all these different planets it gets a little muddy it becomes a little angly hulk we'll talk about it when we get there but at the same time we also have our other narcissistic guardian the one that really caused the problems with the sovereignty rocket learning his lesson yeah he is left with the ship and he has been a major asshole like he's intentionally going further than before he just stole the batteries for the sake of pissing other people off and then even when star lord and gamora and drax are going off with ego he's like have fun with your father orphan boy he has taken assholishness to a new level but He's going to be found by Yondu and the Ravagers, who could have gone after the Guardians at any time. Yondu reveals, back before the mission at Xandar, we put a tracker on the ship. So they've been able to track the Guardians ever since before their battle with Ronin. Even when Yondu gets to that planet and finds them, he's like, oh no, of course we're not going to turn them in. We'd have the whole Nova Corps after us. He always has a reason, right? He's always like, we can't do it for this or that. We'll make more money by selling the batteries and then his dumb crew, (laughs) even they can do the math and are like, no, we won't. Why are you doing this? Actually, they can't do the math. 25%? That's like one third. No, a quarter is 25. You can't even get a pair of boots for that. Yeah, but even they know it's not a trade-up to say this little sack of batteries is worth more than the bounty. And so that's why it kind of becomes chaos here. I do like Rocket when he's playing predator with the ravagers you know he's got all these booby traps there he's stunning some it gets a little too cartoony for me when he's throwing them in the air back and forth and they go maybe a hundred feet up land and a hundred feet up again but it's 
cool to see Rocket be a badass with his tech. And we see Nebula. This is where she gets free because she convinces Groot to free her. Poor baby Groot just does not understand that Nebula is not going to make the situation better. You know what? There was this piece of fruit she always wanted to eat on the ship and everyone kept telling her, no, it's not ripe. I kept thinking, oh, that has something to do with the plants that we saw from Kurt <laughs> Russell at the beginning. No, it's just a not ripe fruit. She finally get, takes a bite of it and spits it out. Yeah, they play it up. Again, they, they play with conventions, you know. They tell you early on, if she gets that fruit, then she's going to be able to break free of her chains somehow. No, she literally just wanted to eat fruit and her <laughs> sister was telling her it wasn't ripe. So this is that kind of humor sensibility that sort of works, sometimes doesn't. Again, I don't feel like the comedy has gotten stronger with this installment. I feel like they're doing more of the same kind of jokes. And consequently, because it's a sequel, and I don't believe that sequels to comedies get better. Personally, again, I'm grateful that I have things to cling on to that aren't the comedy because I'm not laughing as hard. And I don't feel like there's a whole lot to cling on to besides the comedy, as I've said. Here, the fruit joke. Yeah, they kept it coming back. I didn't think the fruit was ever a way to get free, but I did find it funny that she has to spit it out the way she comes in. Hello, boys. Like, all cool, badass. She just took out Yondu. She just took out Rocket. And I thought she killed Yondu. I mean, she shoots him in the head. I didn't know that Finn was a piece of tech that only controlled his arrow. I thought that Finn was part of him. And when she blows it up and he falls over, I'm like, crap, she just killed Yondu. Yeah, she's cool. I like her more in this one. She's another character like Yondu that I feel like having more exposure to, giving her more of a moment. It's not like she has a much wider character arc. You know, she'll go through what so many characters do. I want to hurt my family and then I really want them to heal me, but I think she's kind of a badass. I look forward to seeing her in future installments. Yeah, I actually thought she was going to take over the Ravager. She's always in the background, then she takes off, but again, Arnie, I like her little monologue. It's not long. Hey, my dad made me and Gamora fight every day, and every time I lost, I got replaced with a robotic part, and again, it's just a little bit of depth. That's all I need, a little bit of depth, and I get these villains in the Marvel Universe. I wish they would do this more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I feel like they have taken what were good, fun characters and added new dimensions to them. And even if the storylines don't take them exactly where we want them to go, they're better for it. This movie has a lot of heart, I'll agree. And it does deepen the characters. My problem is I think this is just the second movie with these characters. And I'd like a little bit more plot driven. And I'd like these monologues to feel organic. They really never feel organic. Every time they, they give one of these, it feels like a 90210 moment. And I'm like, why are you telling this now to the person to whom you're saying it? It never once feels true. This movie feels incredibly artificial. I believe that Yondu and Rocket do have some kind of bond, that he ultimately sees himself in Rocket. I believe that, and it, I had to be sold that. Well, they say that. They call that out. Yeah, I had to be sold that. I had to be walked through that by having them be imprisoned together, having to face off with Taserface <laughs> together. I do see that connection. So I feel like it's dramatized. It doesn't always feel like monologuing. Yeah, and again, that great moment where they break out of prison, and again, just visually, Yondu whistling his arrow over that whole ship, and him, and Rocket and Baby Groot doing the Reservoir Dogs slow-mo walk. It's just bodies fall. I do feel like Guardians popularized the trend to, hey, make your trailer into a music video. And that's going to sell the movie. 
And this is a really good instance of that. Just good soundtrack, beautifully looking visually with that red trail going all around, the bodies falling. It, it's just little moments that really sell it for me here. Just they really took care into what they were doing. But Jesus Christ, it's quite a massacre, isn't it? He kills everybody and there's bodies raining. Yes, that's the thing. It's a beautiful genocide. <laughs> and of course, there's a lot of jokes you guys are skipping over. The way they get out of the cell, baby Groot. Because I don't care about that like 10 minutes of jokes baby Groot does that goes on too long yeah but there's 10 minutes in here that you guys are glossing over that i don't think worked very well <laughs> neither do i that's why i'm not going to talk about it do you want to go over every joke and evaluate how funny it is it is too long i agree i think that if you needed to have cute Groot moments they put them in the right place that Groot is going to be tasked with getting the mechanical mohawk that uh, Yandu wears and can't get it right. It, it established that he doesn't really understand anyone other than Rocket. And even then, I guess in this circumstance, he doesn't quite get it. I'm sure there are m many people, not my audience, but many audiences that are going to eat up every facial reaction, every wrong decision. I mean, the fact that even these hardened pirates want to turn him into the mascot and outfit him in a little outfit. He is. He's a little doll and on some level irresistible to all. The crowd laughed at every joke. Maybe half of them were funny to me, but the, the masses loved it all. Yeah, that's my opening night audience too they laughed at everything but for me it was hit or miss like he brought dirty underwear i'm like not funny he brings a severed toe all right that is funny that was <laughs> funny yes <laughs> i mean he's like a minion he's like an animated character you would see in a pixar movie or one of the lesser animated movies probably and as the curmudgeonly middle-aged man i just don't like those kinds of movies i saw that strain of humor in the first film i see it here I choose to ignore it now. What I'm saying, and, and the reason why I was unable to embrace the first movie is, I'm not going to let the jokes that don't work for me get in the way of what I do enjoy. I think I did last time. I mean, they're not offensive. I'm not feeling like these are bad jokes. I just feel like they're playing to different parts of the audience at certain times. And yeah, this is the group. For the group fans, you're going to get some great group shots and... For those that aren't, it's not going to last too long. And I love certain Groot moments. There's some Groot that's my favorite stuff in the film. Him in that Ravager outfit is extraordinarily cute. When Yandu is killing everyone and Groot finds the guy who dressed him up and poured all the liquor on him and everything, and Groot goes and takes out that one guy, I really like that. But Groot bringing a desk, Groot bringing dirty underwear... This movie is straying far too much into comedy. I'm getting the same kind of vibe I got off of Ant-Man. I'm trying to figure out who the audience is, but I'm feeling it's a much younger audience than the first Guardians. It just reminded me how much more well-balanced the humor is there. And yeah, I think there's far less jokes. To me, this feels like a darker movie. If it seems like they're trying to overdo the cutesy moments, it's to counterbalance and sweeten the darker family tensions that weren't present in the first movie and that Disney suits have to be a little worried about. There's nothing dark to me in this that's, I mean, if you're talking darkness, I'd say a light at 80% versus 100%. I do not see darkness in this film. To me, it comes from the subtext. Again, I feel like a, there's a lot of Ang Lee Hulk here, and I'm surprised they went back to that because that was a very unsuccessful Marvel movie. Just because they have father issues, this is not Ang Lee's. <laughs> 
Hulk. There is such, yeah, all the metaphors of strolling your seed around the universe and can you embrace narcissism and a, a son that is only a reflection of the father. That's kind of deep to me. No, here's what I saw, and maybe because I come with a different perspective as a stepdad. I mean, seeing this film about a child who does kind of reject the guy who brought him up to go hang out with dad, who's the new cool guy, and he's not that really that great of guy, and the kid's got to come to that realization, oh, you know what, it's the people that cared about me is more important. Like, that's something I totally relate to right now, where I got two stepgirls, and they're always going to love their dad, even, in my opinion, if he's not always a great dad or a great guy, and I'm kind of on the sideline doing a lot of the hard work, and maybe they don't always see that. Maybe they will when they're older. I do think this hits some deep family feelings like that, that maybe you have to be in that kind of situation to see, but it is there. Well, Jacob, if you stop threatening to eat them, they might like you better. <laughs> and I think many people are there. I mean, I think that in this day and age, we've moved far beyond the stigma and divorce. People have chosen to live in expanded families. Couples don't necessarily stay together, and there are these extended, broken, whatever you want to call it, alternative families. I think that this is a reflection of family in today's age. I mean, I think they've done a good job of that, of exploring those tensions. To me, that feels dark or challenging. Now, every Disney movie has dark elements, but for me, this one hits harder. I wish I felt that when I was watching it. They're certainly going to play it over with just a lot of jokes to make the movie feel light. While that stuff you're talking about, the themes are in there. When you're watching this movie, the focus is Drax telling Mantis, you're ugly, but it's it's good to be ugly because then you know people really love you. And her finding happiness in him considering her ugly and things like that. Just Yondu and Rocket getting to Ego's planet that gets our Stanley cameo as they do over 700 jumps and we get another joke that I mean I just don't think this fits in the spirit of the Marvel Universe when we're gonna go all adult swim cartoon like and make their cheeks bulge and their eyes bulge and it made Rocket look like Scrat from Ice Age I thought when he was all pointy nosed and big eyed and everything and it just seems out of place in this universe but Groot vomiting on himself was at least a little bit amusing and gross-out humor, but joke after joke after joke makes this entire thing feel as deep as an episode of Family Ties. See, I disagree, because those jokes are passing by me, and I'm really digging the family themes that are there. Those are sticking out to me. Well, Family Ties had a lot of family themes. They did. It's not in a Family Times kind of way, though. And again, this is a Marvel film going back to... Winter Soldier, I don't think this is as in-depth as Winter Soldier, but that really focused on something different. That got into this political conspiracy type thing, and it felt different for the Marvel Universe up until that point. To have a film be about family as much as Guardians is, even more so than the first one, it feels different. You know, I took the family to this, the wife and kids, and so I'm glad that there's that kind of soul-searching in a film. And I also think that they're setting up something here with Drax. While it might be a lot of jokes, I also think he's working through the loss of his wife and it will not surprise me to see him partner with this woman he claims is too repulsive to think about sex without gagging i think it's all set up for moving on for him i actually am hoping that's not the case i like the fact that 
they just aren't each other's types. I don't want to see Mantis and Drax get together in Guardians 3 or 4. I don't want every time a woman to come on screen that we have to figure out who's she a partner for. I would like them to just be platonic. Well, uh, be that as it may, this is what I deeply suspect, and I see that she has signed up for Infinity War, and I think that's how they'll use her. Yeah, What's so telling is at the end when Drax is taking her to that spaceship and he gets buried by the planet, he is holding her up. He's called her ugly and made fun of her, tried to get Rocket to bite her this entire film. But he is holding her up, trying to keep her from being buried in the dirt at the end. And that that's telling to me. Okay, the can I pet your puppy joke did have me laughing out loud. <laughs> the one family relationship that to me, I mean, it's a cool conflict, but I feel like is resolved way too easily is Gamora and her sister. It's a cool battle. I love that she's just sitting there. She's been rejected by Peter and she's cutting off the heads of flowers and in comes this ship to blast her off the surface of Ego. But when did the moment happen that Nebula decided she wasn't going to kill her? She could have. I think it happened at that moment when she had her choking with one hand and had the blade poised. She could have right there. I think she realized she didn't want her dead. This speech between them, at least they're saying it to the right person. It may feel a little bit too on the nose, but when she's giving the speech, you always wanted to win. I only wanted a sister. I think that we're seeing Nebula had love and was just felt hurt and betrayed and there was a massive miscommunication between these two sisters and so the anger manifested itself in a murderous rage but when the time came she loved her sister too much to plunge that blade in yeah i took it as nebula the best revenge is a dish served cold it, it wasn't to kill gamora is to say look i'm the better person just because i win doesn't mean you got to get replaced with robotic part. You know, she's trying to break that cycle. So I, I feel like for her, that is the best thing to do is to not destroy her. I guess it's one of the few times where I feel like people were saying how they're feeling and I wasn't feeling it. A lot of times I'm on the same page as the characters when they're relating to each other. Even if the speeches are on the nose, even if it is not completely organic, I usually am emotionally present with the characters. And here I'm like, not feeling it. Just not feeling it between these two. Even though I like these two, I'm not liking their scenes together. Wow. These are the two that I liked the speeches between the best. So the way you describe is how I felt when Yandu was talking to Rocket and when Nebula was talking to Kraglin and all of these other speeches. But this one I went with. It's a subplot. It is given short shrift. You know, as soon as this battle happens, they didn't even put this battle in the IMAX format, I noticed. They left this one in the widescreen. And once it's over, it's over real quick. And Nebula and Gamora are just going to go back together. Of course, this is when the whole climax is coming. Rocket and Yandu are coming. They defeated Taserface. And all right, the Taserface jokes were kind of funny too. I did laugh at Rocket laughing at Taserface. And I didn't laugh when the sovereign person Taserface called laughed at Taserface though. I'm like, if the only person to ever laugh at it was Rocket, other people finding it funny was a bit much. I always loved when the ever the sovereign like broke character and then they laugh at Taserface or they're carpet that tells me james gunn is on uh, the same wavelength like not to take this too seriously with these gold people but he called in the sovereign so i thought for sure that ego was going to be defeated by the sovereign like that would be the big thing is the guardians would set something up and hop out of the middle so the sovereign were fighting ego because they're sending hundreds of ships after the guardians and 
Yandu and Rocket have to take, what, a mining ship that Yandu once used to break into a bank down. And this is where we get our big 3D light show, right? Where just everything has to start exploding like they do in every superhero movie, every rocks flying. And I mean, from when they enter into Ego and start going underground to the funeral scene at the end, that's a half hour. This is a half hour of just stuff exploding, which is too long, especially for this film. You told me at the beginning, the big battles aren't what really matter. It's the relationships. It's the jokes. And so to spend 30 minutes on just ships shooting at each other, uh, it's too long for me. A lot of this could have been cut. Not to mention the fact that I don't see a way that Peter and Ego can resolve this in any other way than Angley Hulk biting into the electric cable. You know what I mean? Like, they're immortal as long as the center of the planet holds. So what does happen? They, I, I guess they got a bomb. Baby Groot finally hits the button and they blow up the brain. But I do got to say, I love that we get that Pac-Man moment better than the Pac-Man and Pixels, and that got people cheering. Like, you set up that joke early on that he wanted to make a Pac-Man, and he Star-Lord turns himself into Pac-Man to try to defeat his dad. I thought that Ego turned into, like, the thing. He surrounded himself with orange rocks and punched through Pac-Man. I actually had a hard time following the end. Just felt like so many things were going on. I couldn't keep track of who was winning the battle, who wasn't. I felt myself becoming disengaged. I was struggling to understand the symbolism. Again, all of this blue goo is sprouting out all around Dairy Queen and all these other planets. And what is that ultimately going to look like? What is happening there? I understand people are being crushed, but I don't understand exactly what's causing it or how it will be stopped other than, I guess, you blow up the brain. And I don't understand exactly how Ego works, I suppose, because at times he's the planet and he knows Groot is down there, so he's going to crush the cavern that Groot's in, threatening to kill him. He's going to pull the ground underneath from Drax, so like he's caught in quicksand. Meanwhile, across the galaxy, not just on Earth, we're going to see five or six different planets of different species running from the blue blob. But then when you punch the Kurt Russell avatar of Ego, he gets distracted. Ego would be far better served. I guess his name is Ego, and so that's his undoing. But he'd be better served just going back to the brain and using his planet form instead of constantly reforming as Kurt Russell because that's what kills him is he gets distracted. Yeah, it's distracting, I guess, the Kurt Russell part of him. That's his downfall. When he's not challenged, that's when he could grow, invade other planets, take out all the good guys. But when, I don't know, he's being put to sleep by Mantis, which just involves sticking your hand in a rock, I guess, or he has to fight multiple people. He's not able to concentrate as much. And he could only get the blue blob to go when he used Peter as a battery. When Peter started to rebel... Yeah, he didn't look at him as a son. He used him as an opportunity to expand himself. And that's really all that he cared about. Again, he's not a character that can love. He did not love the wife. He did not love his son. He didn't love any of his children. I did think that was, a, a, again, just a visually stunning scene when Gamora and Nebula find this cavern just full of bones and skulls and you find out those are all his kids all ego's kids that i guess couldn't harness the power couldn't control it and died this is narcissism at its core you can only care about yourself you only see yourself you look at other life he explains it in that diorama i looked at other life and i realized i just don't want to connect with it i don't want to see myself the same as it there's only me i'm the only thing that's important but yeah i just Peter and him going at it, and it is a lot of noise. I care more about the people getting off the planet and escaping on that ship. Of course, a hole gets knocked in it, and Nebula 
Gamora and Mantis fall down onto the planet for a bit. But the big sacrifice is going to be Yondu. He came down. Everybody's escaping. Here's my question. We're supposed to think that Rocket had this epiphany when he was with Yondu. And I knew Yondu was dead as soon as Rocket's like, let's go. Yondu says he's staying. And Rocket does that. Welcome to the friggin' Guardians of the Galaxy line. I'm like, okay, you wouldn't say that before this mission if he was coming back from it alive. Well, no, of course. That's not something they're hoping you don't know. That's He's acknowledging and having a moment, a personal moment. Here's someone who claims he doesn't care about anybody except for maybe Baby Groot. And yeah, it, it's I sense... He feels that loss. When he has to give Yondu, he's got, what, one jetpack and one spacesuit. They're just these little discs that expand on you. When he hands those over and he says there's only one of each, he knows this is goodbye. Yeah, no, it's that's why it's a powerful scene. Did he use the batteries? I heard at some point that he was considering using the batteries he stole, but I lost track of how he might have used them. The batteries were the bomb that Groot sets off. Ah, okay. That's Again, I just had trouble with where everything was happening. For this ending, it just felt like there was way too much going on in the galaxy, and I had trouble focusing what people were fighting in the individual scenes. But everybody except Yondu and Peter get back to the ship, and the fact that Rocket left Peter there, presumably to die, Gamora tries to get out to go help Peter. Rocket tases her and says, I'm only going to lose one friend today, meaning Peter, Does that not mean Rocket is still being selfish? He's still just giving Peter up? No, I think he he doesn't know if it's Peter. It could be Yondu as well. They've bonded already. That is his friend too. Yondu stays down there because Peter's busy fighting. That's why they don't rescue him is they're all getting off of there while he distracts Ego. He could be talking about either friend down there. Yeah, I mean, he believes that Peter has sacrificed his life and he's willing to not see any more casualties. I take it at his word. If he thought that there was a way of saving Peter, he would have joined Gamora in that moment. I think that this was his way of acknowledging there's nothing that we can do but die on the surface if we pursue this. And he also knows that Yondu is there and Yondu gets to have that redemption. Yeah, it just, when I watched it the second time, Rockets closing the door and preventing everyone from going just felt like For somebody who was very much for himself at the beginning of the film, Rocket should have been trying to sacrifice himself to save Peter instead of being a heavy that says, all right, everybody stay here. Maybe that makes more sense by story logic, but you want the two fathers. And I find it interesting. Drax called it out at the beginning of the film that Yondu is Peter's father, and they kind of laughed that off as a joke. But you do want this to come down between the two fathers and the son. Thematically, that just makes more sense. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there are decisions that are made because thematically, this is where we want them to land. And how they get them there doesn't always track. That's why I keep going back to Angley's Hulk, like an ending where I just don't understand, but I know what they were going for. I I feel like that's happening here as well. And I'm very moved by this goodbye. I mean, I didn't think I cared about Yondu, but I was tearing up. I'm right there with you. And one of the things I love about this film is, again, they set little things up. We saw the Ravagers. When they mutiny, they're sending people loyal to Yondu out into space. And that tells you something. Oh, you can only last like a minute. So when Yondu is up there with Star-Lord, you know he doesn't have an infinite amount of time. I like little just little things like that that tell you there is a sense of danger, that he can't last forever out there. But yeah... My wife was crying. My girls were upset. I was upset. I was almost brought to tears by Yondu. I didn't know I cared about this guy. 
And even right now, I'm getting a little choked up thinking about it. I couldn't believe that I was feeling this much depth over a superhero movie. Wow, I did not feel that about Michael Rooker in this film. I felt that way about Groot last film when he sacrificed himself to save the crew. I was really torn up by the death of Groot. And then he came back as a little baby. Here... I was sad that we wouldn't get to see more of Michael Rooker because I've liked his character in both films. I wish he'd be able to come back and bring more of that vibe in the future. So I'm sad on an intellectual level, but I felt no emotion. Uh, very different from my response. And this one is more impacting because there is no twig to stick into a pot, right? I mean, Michael Rooker, I presume, is not going to come back. Fathers die, and that's the pain. We must feel this. There's like 15 minutes left of this film. Now, probably half of that's credits. But the fact that the rest of this film is all about Yondu and his funeral scene and all the Ravagers returning and giving him a Ravager funeral with all these fire. Like, they were betting a lot that they had sold you on the death of Yondu. And they, at least for me, and it sounds like Stuart, they did it. I'm glad the focus is here at the end. Like, man, I didn't know I'd miss that guy. I was glad that they had the resolution, you know, the fact that they were setting all this up. Stallone told him, Stakar, you may dress like us, but you'll never hear the horns of freedom when you die, Yondu, and the colors of a chord will never flash over your grave. And here they are. I don't know if you heard the horns, but there were certainly the colors of accord all of the other 99 ravenger factions came rockets the one who called them his bonding with yandu he called them all up and said yandu helped save the galaxy can you forgive him for that whole child selling thing yeah not to mention they now understand that he was protecting a child from a worse father by not delivering him to ego uh, he did him a favor, and everyone a favor. Yeah, but he delivered like 50 kids before that. I mean, there was a huge mountain of bones of children delivered by Yondu. Well, he finally figured out what was going on, I guess. <laughs> He's slow. All right, yeah, there is that. But that's kind of obscured. There are things, there are uncomfortable truths that are kind of obscured. And the important thing here is... We got the Cat Stevens going. The soundtrack has been as on point in this movie as it was in the last one. And we're ending not with laughter. We're not going to play sarcasm. They're brave enough to say, let's go out on melancholy and emotion. I did like the Cat Stevens song. Overall, I think the soundtrack worked as well in the movie. However, the soundtrack isn't as good for me. The last one, I owned like all but one of the songs on that soundtrack before it ever came out. Those were songs I grew up with and loved to begin with. Here, James Gunn went a little bit deeper on his catalog picks. I've heard only perhaps half the songs, and I owned maybe a couple. I hadn't heard this Cat Stevens song until the movie. I gotta wonder, with Volume 3, are they gonna bring back the Zune? Did they come up with a deal with Microsoft? Because I know Kira, my 10-year-old, <laughs> turned to me. She's like, what's a Zune? And I'm like, I had to explain to her what that was. <laughs> <laughs> that was Marjorie's biggest laugh of the entire movie because when we started podcasting back in 2005, we had an incompatibility with the Zune and we were like, and what's that impact? <laughs> Two people in the world and the Zune people were pissed at us. <laughs> we're like, who uses a Zune in 2005? So when that Zune showed up, we felt very vindicated and laughed hard. It holds <laughs> 300 songs. Well, if it does come back, we'll figure out a way for now playing to run on it, I guess. Even Microsoft has given up on that brand. <laughs> but yeah, it is a funny end joke in a way that I guess Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is going to be a multi-disc set because it's going to have 300 songs on it. I was scared it was going to be loaded up with the pop music of the time of the Zune. It would be like a lot of Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and... 
Maybe some Nelly. That would be a very different, a very different vibe for a Guardians film. Could go that way. I mean, by that point, a different generation will be nostalgic for the music of their youth. And you got to think about that. Gen X won't always be the people that they're making the jokes for, but they go out on an original song. Yeah, they work in Parliament and Flashlight, but they also have Guardians Inferno as sung by Hasselhoff. Yeah, I'm glad they're bringing back the 80s trope of having a rap song or or some kind of theme song about what you just saw as the closing credits song. <laughs> yeah, they they were going to that. And I mean, Hasselhoff was the joke through. I We didn't even mention, but one of my favorite jokes is when Kurt Russell says, I tried to be the kind of dad you want and turns into Hasselhoff mid-battle. That was, that was a good laugh. And if that really was David Hasselhoff, he's looking pretty good. He's worked off some of those cheeseburgers and drink. But yes, a lot of end credits credits scenes oh dear god and this is a joke too right i mean he announced there were five end credit scenes i'm like he's gonna just have snippets i thought it might be like trailers for the clone wars micro series just to have end scenes for the sake of having end scenes and none of them tease well i guess there is one tease for guardians 3 but that is it most of them are just there as jokes there's one big tease yeah, the one that mattered to me, and again, you guys aren't encouraging me, I picked the right one, was that we go back to the sovereignty, and she's developed Adam. That is the one that matters the most. If there's only one, it would be that one. Adam Warlock, who is Space Jesus in the Marvel Universe, I think? Like, he's got a weird history, but he is the hero of the Infinity Gem storyline, that, that big storyline we're building up to. I don't think it's going to go that way in the cinematic universe, but he's a big deal. He He's the one that's going to confront Thanos, in the comics at least. Oh, wait. I thought it was Black Adam. <laughs> no, that's DC. That's The Rock. Oh, see, and this is why I'll always be the comic book newbie. Okay, whatever. Well, I was half right, at least. No, this is Adam Warlock, A-D-A-M, and I'm excited to see where it goes, and I'm displeased that we're bringing back the Sovereign, though. They felt like a one-joke wonder that did not need to continue into future movies. Well, I was speaking of one-hit wonders, Howard the Duck. Cosmo of the Dog, they're popping up in these credits. Hey, Stan Lee shows up twice. He's in the movie and gets an end credit scene, hanging out with the Watchers, who I don't think we'll ever see in another Marvel Universe movie. I can't believe they showed the Watchers because the Watcher first premiered in like Fantastic Four 50. Yes. These are characters owned by Fox. Now, Ego is owned by Fox. It's a Thor character, though. How does Fox own them? Because of the cosmic stuff of Fantastic Four. And I think they got lucky. James Gunn said he wrote this whole script with Ego and there was no plan B. He just assumed Marvel owned Ego. It turned out they didn't and he wasn't sure what to do. Fox ain't ever going to use Ego. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to change what the powers were for teenage Negasonic Warhead for Deadpool. <laughs> and Marvel was like, hmm, maybe if you let us have Ego, we'll let you change those powers. And so that's how they got Ego. Wow, the weird dealings. <laughs> <laughs> but how'd they get the Watchers? I was, I love the Watchers. I think they're hysterical. And here, Kevin Feige confirmed this in an interview. This is saying all of the Stan Lee cameos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are the same person. Because he's sitting there telling the Watchers he used to be a FedEx driver, which is when he delivered that envelope to Tony Stank. Which is Civil War, right? No, right. Do you have these things in your house? I feel like when I've been in Arnie's house now, I've seen these characters. They're very Jack Kirby-ish. Yes, Jack Kirby created them. <laughs> yep, and I do have a Watcher in my house, so yes. 
Yes. All right. I've seen it. I'm like, I, I'm, tr- I'm learning. I won't ever be a comic book nerd, but I'm learning these things. I, I know Jack Kirby. See, <laughs> he's one of the few that matter. So yes, <laughs> that's a good one to know. <laughs> and the other one, I guess it's sort of important. We're not going to get baby Groot again. We're going to get sullen teenage rebellious Groot. Yeah. How much time has passed to get teenage Groot? <laughs> I think Groot grows fast. You know, we went from, he was a stick when he was brought on board the Milano, and then he was had a couple branches dancing aboard the Milano. Now he's a baby three months later. I think that's only three or six months later, and I think what it's telling us is when Infinity War comes around, we're going to have adult Groot ready to battle Thanos. We don't want little baby Groot running around an Infinity Gauntlet. I do love that teenagers, no matter what species, they just care about their iPhones and their games. I love that they gave Groot like the Peter Brady breaking adolescent I am Groot voice. It wasn't the baby voice. It wasn't an adult (laughs) voice. It was like this cracking voice and just the, (laughs) he was shedding leaves all over. That was, there was a lot of subtlety to that scene that I really enjoyed, including Peter now the father, right? He's, he says, now I know how Yondu felt. It's the passing of the torch there. The other two scenes, Kraglin, we didn't talk much about Kraglin. He had an extended role in this film because he's James Gunn's brother, Sean Gunn, and he was fun in Belko Experiment. If you guys saw that film, I, I recommend Belko Experiment pretty highly. But here, I felt like I'm giving my brother a job a lot of his scenes. I liked it. I felt like it thematically tied in. I believed his pain. He had been the guy that was loyal to Yondu, and yet Yondu loved the guy that had left him. And that has to hurt when you're the one that's holding it together, but that he gets a piece of his mentor, that he gets to wear the mohawk and give Drax a piercing with the whistling arrow, worked for me. I've never seen that arrow not impale someone, and so that he hit Drax in the throat, I'm like, is Drax gonna live through that? I think I needed another (laughs) cutscene to show Drax is okay. Well, maybe you don't want him after this one. (laughs) Hopefully he won't laugh as much next time. And then, yeah, the fifth scene we already talked about with the original Guardians 3000 getting together, Ving Rhames. Ooh, I, almost unrecognizable. <laughs> <laughs> he, I guess he took a break from doing Arby's commercials so that he could do a Guardians cameo. <laughs> He's been eating a lot of Arby's, man. <laughs> I was about to say, that's all he does now. I, I think he's lost whatever cool cachet he had from Pulp Fiction, but maybe he can get it back as this new whatever crew under Stallone. I don't know. I'm not a Stallone guy, so I don't really care. He's gotten so much bigger. Somebody in my audience asked if that was a CGI'd version of Michael Clark Duncan. I thought the same thing. I'm like, wait, no, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody in my audience said the same thing. It's just, he's dead. Did they CGI him in here? No, that's Ving Rhames, not Michael Clark Duncan. <laughs> Lay off the RVs. You don't need the five beef and cheddars for $5. Enough Mediterranean tacos, Ving. So they're coming back in something? What are they? Do we know? They're the original version, so I, I'm guessing they're... We're going to have multiple Guardians to go up against. I don't know. I don't know what happens after Thanos in the Marvel Universe. They said, as far as the ground characters, it's going to look different. They're, they got to come up with something to explain why Tony Stark isn't Robert Downey Jr. anymore and all that. So who knows? Well, that's right. Chris Evans is not going to be Captain America. This is all going to be radically shifting. Yeah. Contracts 
we're running out. But James Gunn said this was intended to be a joke, a wink to the fans of the original Guardians and things. It's not necessarily setting something up for the future, but the fact that Guardians Volume 3 is going to be laying the groundwork for, like they said, the next 10 years of films, it is almost impossible to believe But Next year is the 10th anniversary of Iron Man 1, so they're setting up the next 10 years already. I don't know if Stallone is still up for doing Expendables-like films, and if Ving Rhames is too, maybe they'll go that way. But how about this Guardians team? Final thoughts. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? Jacob. You know, I feel like I didn't focus a lot on the stuff I didn't like so much in this movie. And there is that stuff. I think the pacing's off. Way too long of a movie. Jokes that just go on too long, trying to get a laugh after laugh after laugh after you. I feel like side by side, if I had to pick a Guardians movie to watch, if I just wanted to get through a movie, something brisk pace, had some action, I'd watch that first one. But this one, it's slower, it's clumsier, but I like it more. It's just got more heart to it. I like the family dynamic. I like that people are given depth in this one and that there are personal conflicts. It's not just, yeah, there's something about ego trying to take over the universe, but that's not what the conflict really is. It's really about fathers and son, and it's just more meaningful, even though it's a big space movie, just like Star Wars, big space movie. But what really matters is that family conflict. And I think James Gunn got it right here. He made me care about characters while you know, I recommended that last film, I don't know if I ever wanted to see him again. Now I'm sad I'm not going to see this version of the Guardians. I want to see the Guardians where Yondu is a part of them and Nebula is a part of them. And I'm not going to get that. So even though I, you know, those technical aspects, the pacing, all, all that kind of stuff, this may not be a better movie because there's more heart. It just hit me deeper. I enjoyed it more, and I think it's a stronger film. And so, yeah, this is a recommend. Stuart. Yeah, what Jacob said. I agree. And that may not surprise everyone, because supposedly I'm the guy that hated the first film. I never hated it. I do want to say, for all those people with the letter-writing campaign to tell me how wrong I was, I admit it. You're right. I was wrong. But I never hated it. What I struggled, what I wrestled with that first movie was... However well it was made, however good the performances were, it just felt frivolous. And that's not something I would say about this movie. This movie has a lot of heart. It has a lot of themes. It feels like it's tapping into where I'm at emotionally in my life. And while I don't feel like they get the message there successfully in the drama 100%, I'm glad they chose to tackle it. It would have been very easy just to tell the same jokes and still be flippant and still just get by on a laugh. I'm sure some people would have appreciated if the melodrama got out of the way of their fun. But I thought Kurt Russell made a very compelling villain. I think that he's the best Marvel villain we may have ever had, partly because he's so complicated and partly because, yeah, we have the president we do and it just is so topical. And it was a really nice message to have out here right now. I really appreciated seeing this movie right now in this day and age. It's not as funny as Guardians 1, but yeah, I think it's a better movie, and it's a nice rebound from some of the lesser Marvels that I've seen lately, like Doctor Strange and Ant-Man. This is really shocking to me. I didn't expect this one coming in, but of the three of us, it definitely sounds like I'm the one who liked it the least. And... That really surprises me because I was the most hyped for it. I mean, come on, Tango and Cash reunited on screen? Even then, I was excited for that. And I was not excited at all to see it. So yeah, you're right. And my problem is 
It felt like too much jokiness. I'll agree, it had more heart, but the pacing problems Jacob alluded to, this movie has no momentum, and it has a lot of these speeches. The fact that I'm thinking Family Ties and Saved by the Bell is not a good thing. I don't think this holds a candle to the original. I'm stunned to hear you guys say you like it better than the first. I mean, it's just, I don't think it has enough of a plot to hold together that way. It feels very much like a character study, and it, because this is only the second movie, if this was like part five and we'd had so many adventures and we wanted something slow, this is like Star Trek Insurrection. Remember that where they go to that one planet where Troy's breasts get firm and Picard rides an RV, and you're just so happy to see those characters again that you're gonna kind of just be like whatever with the movie? I gave it a green arrow. It's fine if you're on your fourth or fifth outing, but this is their second one, and I wanted to see a little bit more of a plot, a little bit more of the Marvel comic book movie, and a little bit less of, we're going to make jokes and pretend like we're Ant-Man instead of the Guardians. And I just wish the Guardians were better used. I mean, there's only five of them, or if you count Yondu, Nebula, and Mantis, eight, I suppose. But if you look at an Avengers movie, a really good team movie, the very first Avengers, Joss Whedon's first, that was a movie where you had at least eight characters and each one had their own plot, each one had their own character arc and something to do that really mattered in regards to the whole film. Here, Baby Groot and Drax feel like they're extraneous. They are just there to be punchlines or to deliver jokes, and Gamora's story is really shoved to the side. This is Star-Lord's and, to a lesser degree, Rocket's movie, and it just doesn't feel as balanced as I think a team movie, an ensemble film, should be. I was left wanting more of the team, and yet less of them just sitting around telling jokes and talking about their feelings. But all that said, I was happy to see the team. The actors are on point. I think they all delivered great performances. They have really gotten into their characters, especially Zoe Saldana, who has one of the hardest roles there, being the stoic Gamora. I mean, she played it last movie almost like a Vulcan, without any emotion, when she isn't supposed to be emotionless. I think she really did the love story in here good, and it's a movie that was full of jokes, and I'm happy to say that especially on my first viewing, most of the jokes did work on me. For every one that didn't make me laugh, two made me laugh out loud. So I had a good time while watching the movie. Because of that, I'm going to give it a recommend. I'm going to give it a green arrow for sure. It was a fun time. It just wasn't a tight movie. It didn't have momentum. It didn't feel important. It is kind of, in my mind, on the level of Ant-Man. It was an affable enough film. It's fine. But compared to the first Guardians of the Galaxy, which is very much in the running for my favorite Marvel movie of all time, this one, quite a step down from that. This one does not feel as tight. This one does not feel as important. But Kurt Russell was a joy to watch on screen as Ego. I really enjoyed the effects at the end. I really enjoyed the final fight. And how could you not love little Baby Groot? I mean, walking out, I still love Baby Groot and all of his scenes, even if he was a simple joke. And I found myself quoting this movie a lot. Its punchlines have become a staple in Marjorie's and my conversation as we're on vacation down here in New Orleans. And even adolescent Groot's 
I am Groot with his Peter Brady voice. So yeah, it is a recommend. It's just on the weaker side of recommend. Still, it's it's a middling Marvel movie. It's no Thor 2. It's no Iron Man 3. It's not almost bad. It's not right there even on the border of not recommend. But... It's in there with Iron Man 2 and Ant-Man and just in that middling Marvel movie range. It lost a lot from that original one, and I feel it's one that's not going to hold up to repeat watchings. I saw it twice in three days, and I wasn't looking forward to going back the second time, and I don't know when I'll watch it again, maybe right before Guardians 3, whereas I could rewatch Guardians 1 on my flight home from New Orleans and love every minute of it. Well, good, then we are Groot then. I'm glad to hear we're at least all on the same color. And I think probably the listeners are glad too. Yeah, I just, I can't believe it's flaws weren't more harmful to the movie for you two who are less built-in fanboy for this type of entertainment. I honestly thought I might be the only recommend. No, I liked it because it had more theme. It wasn't a typical Marvel movie. (laughs) So that's why it worked. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what you think the first one is, but the first one to me is just jokes. Here, they're willing to say, we're going to make characters. We're going to make themes. We're going to invest deeper in them and not just make them the sum of their pranks. And that's bolder. I mean, I think that this is just artistically a more bold movie. I'm always impressed. I'm always willing to give more to a movie that may fail in some ways if it has ambition. And this one definitely had more ambition than the first film. I'd rather see a film succeed with limited ambition than fail with great ambition, so... Well, what will Spider-Man be then? Hopefully the best Marvel movie of the year. I just can't get my hopes up for Thor too high, even though I, I liked the first one quite a bit. I never put my chips down that it would be the best one of the year. I honestly thought Guardians 2 would be the best. Now I'm putting my chips on Spider-Man. That movie looks pretty dang good. I can honestly say I don't want more Spider-Man. It's only because of all the rebooting in the past. Hopefully it's the best one. No more dead Uncle Ben. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so tired of seeing that story again. And the fact that it's another father figure. In fact, it seems to be the movie that Sam Raimi wanted to be Spider-Man 4. It is a little wearying to think that we're going to go back there, but I also know that Marvel is really on top of their game right now, and it would not surprise me if this is the best Spider-Man movie. I don't anticipate it being my favorite Avengers movie. But man, we have so many theatrical releases between now and then. We're not getting to Spider-Man until July. I mean, on the main feed, our next weekend of release movie is only four weeks away, another comic book movie, Could it be the best comic book movie of the year? I'm hearing rumblings it might. Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Surely it could be the best DC movie. (laughs) Did we just say that? Yes, we said it at the same time. Low bar. (laughs) I mean, that's the obvious bar. Yes. My statement is Guardians of the Galaxy is the best number two in the Marvel Cinematic Universe behind only Winter Soldier. But look what I'm comparing it against. Thor 2 and Iron Man 2 and Age of Ultron. So Yeah, these are strange metrics. But yeah, it would be nice to see DC get a good one out there. I have not been a fan of what they've been doing since that first Superman movie, which was deeply flawed. And I haven't seen much about this. the, The first time I even saw a trailer was right before Guardians. It looked pretty good, actually. Early word from the... Test screenings has been very positive, so we'll see. Hopefully audiences can get over her armpits enough to actually go see the movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> armpits? Does she not shave? No, there's feminists angry that she does shave. Oh, okay. Then on the donation feeds, we've got two theatrical releases before that. I mean, this is now playing goes to the theaters this summer. In two weeks, our review of Alien Covenant will be out for our gold donors. And on our Podbean feed, Brock is coming back so that we can go back to the world of Ridley Scott's Alien. I got to see the new trailer for that both times before Guardians. And that is available with our current donation drive. $10 or more, Pirates of the Caribbean. We're going to be reviewing that the week after Alien Covenant. We have Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. We've been going through the Pirates of the Caribbean series. The second review for Dead Man's Chest came out last Friday. This Friday, we're doing Pirates of the Caribbean at the world's end. So we hope you can join us for that for $10 or more, $25 or more. You get all the Pirates reviews, plus the Aliens reviews with... Again, Covenant coming out in just a couple weeks. For $40 or more, you get the Aliens reviews, the Pirates reviews, and our nine Planet of the Apes reviews because the week of Spider-Man Homecoming, we're also reviewing War for the Planet of the Apes our ninth installment in that. And if that weren't enough, <gasps> huge breath. I mean, there's a lot there that I am anticipating and really excited about, but Twin Peaks on top of it all. Next week, our main feed show is the last David Lynch movie, Inland Empire, but that's only the kickoff to what starts up for all summer long, Showtime season three of one of my favorite TV series ever. I can't believe we're getting new episodes and I haven't seen a frame of new footage. Oh, I don't. you didn't see the new trailer where it just makes everyone look so old. <laughs> I haven't watched anything. It really is 26 years later. <laughs> it tells you nothing, but it's like a class reunion where you're like, wow, I remember when you used to play football. How's that hip replacement? <laughs> <laughs> that gum you like is coming back in style and maybe is so is Cheryl Lee. I'm looking forward to all of that. I can't believe after pouring over what was my obsession in high school that I now can reopen that with new episodes. Yeah, starting in just a couple weeks. If you join now peaking, you're going to hear 18 more hours of content and I can't believe it. And yeah, on the main feed, we have Inland Empire next week, the last David Lynch movie in our series. And perhaps if you read recent interviews, the last David Lynch movie ever. Did he go out on a high note? We'll tell you one week from today. Then the week after that, we start our Wonder Woman retrospective series. There were two TV movies made, 75 and 74, and then we'll do the Gal Gadot film. After that, here's a new announcement for something on our schedule. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when we review you? We're doing all of the cops episodes? That's huge. <laughs> They're not going to make part three, so Arnie said we're doing it this summer. We were waiting until that third Bad Boys movie, and it just kept falling apart. So, yeah, why not do it as a lead-up to the next Michael Bay Transformers film? Transformers The Last Night with Jerry is coming out at the end of June. Then the week after that, another new announcement, another theatrical release. I just can't get enough Edgar Wright, and so... I think Baby Driver looks like it might be the best movie of the summer. I want to review it. We're going to do that for July 4th. Yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged that it'll be good. I really like the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy. So yeah, this is something completely different. It's not a franchise yet. It's not a sequel to anything. It's just because we have faith in the director and writer of so many movies we've recommended. Hopefully Baby Driver will be another great addition to summer 2017. And you can hear us review that Blood and Ice Cream trilogy. Those reviews are out of the vault and up on our Podbean page. 
plus Dunkirk, Dark Tower, Inhumans. I finally got to see a trailer for Inhumans before the IMAX screening. Yeah, have you seen that wig? No. Yeah. That wig should look great on the IMAX screen. This trailer was not there. I did not even see any of this. Are you talking about the trailer that's just people talking and doesn't show a frame of footage? Yeah, but I've also seen the wig. Yeah. That... <laughs> Check it out, Stuart. Dude, Annabelle 2 is coming. <laughs> okay, maybe the wig isn't the worst thing we'll see in theaters. Game over. Best film of summer already set. <laughs> Annabelle creation. <laughs> A s- sequel to a spinoff? <laughs> yeah. What's that dog gonna do next? Can't wait to find out. <laughs> and remember, all these weekend of releases are made possible by donors who support our show. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate and find out how to get all of our bonus reviews. So, guys, thank you for joining me. Listeners, thank you for joining us for another Marvel review. We'll be back next week with Inland Empire because it's a couple more years until the Avengers Assemble! All you do is yell at each other. You're not friends. No, we're family. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Avengers Retrospective Series. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. This is a whole new level of weird. I don't feel inclined to step away from it. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives, where you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics movie series, such as X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Blade, and Punisher, plus DC Comics reviews of Green Lantern, Batman, and Superman. Good luck keeping up. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many more. I'm bringing the party to you. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. We made this thing, all of us. Please. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Here we remain as a beacon of hope, shining out across the stars. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. It's strange. Maybe. Who am I to judge? The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You have to explain that statement, sir. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Is it too much for problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Get yourself something nice for me. I already did. And? Oh, it's very nice. Very tasteful. Now Playing's Avengers Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. I've moved on to the next one, because that's what we do, right? I mean, that's the job. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Wow. You spoke to me with what you did, and I know that you knew that I'd be listening. 
Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Marvel Studios, Paramount Pictures, Universal Pictures, or the Disney Company. The Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, The Incredible Hulk, and all that the Marvel Universe contains are the property and trademark of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. Any last words? Hulk! Smash! I'm sorry. I took it too far. I meant Trash Panda. Is that better? I don't know. It's worse. It's so much worse. <laughs> but Ilea, High Priestess of the Sovereignty, has hired the Ravager crew led by Yandu, played by Michael Rooker. Real quick, Arnie. Yep. You said Ilea, it's Aisha. Oh. Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I just I was just looking it up to make sure, yeah. Yeah, I was doing the same thing. I was like, man, <laughs> I then I got it wrong in my notes every time. It's Aisha. Yeah. Aisha. I get my R and B singers confused. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's what I thought was weird when I saw it in the movie. I'm like, they talking about the singer? <laughs> <laughs> I actually got a little bit of a Captain Kirk vibe off of Peter Quill when I was seeing him hitting on Aisha. Aisha. Isn't that what I said? Yeah. Or is it Ilea? You, you paused, maybe. No, it's Aisha. No, it's Aisha. <laughs> Think of um, another bad creation. <laughs> that doesn't help me. I don't know that. You don't remember Aisha? No. That was their one hit song. Well, they had two hit, but at the playground. But I remember at the playground. Okay. Well, Aisha was the better song. <laughs> I don't see us having a Vegas planet with hookers in Star Wars. Sky Guy and Snips. They've <laughs> gone there. It just hasn't been successful. <laughs> That wasn't funny. It wasn't even entertaining. <laughs> it is if you don't like Star Wars. Oh, stinky. <laughs> We're created. The version we see in these movies with Star Kill Star Killer. <laughs> the other two scenes, Craglin. We didn't talk much about Craglin. He had an extended role in this film because he's Peter Gunn's brother, Sean Gunn. James Gunn, you mean? You mean James Gunn's brother. Oh, yeah. He's James Gunn's brother. 